Good morning. I first want to open in a word of prayer. Uh, I have had more students ask for prayer for our country in the last two days than I had the rest of the semester. Uh, but you know what? This is something that we do at all times. Our country is in a huge period of transition, and regardless of how you feel about that transition, we are called as Christians to pray. And so let us pray for our community, our culture, our country. We haven't had any other prayer requests come in for today, so we will open with this, and then we will formally begin with our panel. Father, we want to thank you that you are in charge, that, Lord, you are our hope, and you are the source of grace for our culture. Lord, we pray for our country. We pray for the people who are making decisions and choices that will help set the course for our future. And we pray for everyone who will be affected by those choices. Help us as a church represent your grace and your truth in this world. And we pray that everything would be done in accordance with your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Every uh, semester, uh, we're going to be giving a, a series to worldview theology. Uh, this semester, for the first time, we're offering a class called God and Religion uh, that is focused on helping Christians learn how to navigate a variety of worldviews. And one way that we do that is by asking the same four questions of every worldview. What is real? What is true? What is human? What is right? Uh, we've been giving chapels to each one of those questions. Today, we are going to talk about humanity. How do we understand what it means to be human? And really, how do we understand how to be human in community? A lot of the questions that come up with that are questions of justice, questions of fairness, questions people are asking right now in our country. And we have put together a wonderful panel. In fact, this panel is the exact same panel we put together for our series on the election, except rather than I being on the panel, Jonathan Heidi is, so the panel is improving. So I encourage the panel to come up here, Dr. Renee Brathwaite, uh, Dr. Latoya Burrell, uh, Burrell uh, Professor Desiree Leibengood, and Professor Jonathan Heidi. So I encourage them to come up here and be a part of this. Not sure where Jonathan Heidi is. Yeah, He's we are coming. missing. But we're going to make him sit front and center when he gets here. He All is right. coming. We have faith that he will be here. Um, <laughs> thank you for giving us this opportunity. And as stated, this is the third, and we're talking about what is human. So, when talking about what is human, naturally, what comes up is what is decency, what is fairness, what is justice. So in addition to talking about what is human, we're going to also try to address those things. And so I am first uh, in the order of things asking the question or answering the question, what is human? And I tend to be long-winded, so I wrote it down. <laughs> uh, Genesis 1 teaches us very importantly that to be human is to be made in the image of a triune God. The image of God makes us distinct from the rest of the material world. The image of God is indelible and it is transmissible. Come on down, Jonathan. Welcome. <laughs> Jonathan, like me, we have a kind of a hike to get here, so. <laughs> um, the image of God is indelible and it's transmissible. That is, we can transmit it to our children. Um, 
Thirdly, the image of God involves both men and women equally and interdependently. And I think in this regard, we need to perhaps read Genesis 2 in light of Genesis 1, or at the very least, we must consider both of them together. Sometimes we miss that. Uh, Two things flow from this, very important things. First, that male superiority is a myth. I'll say it again. Male superiority is a myth. We together, women and men, with our multiple identities, represent the triune God as a unity in diversity. Uh, Second myth, the myth of race. It is a stubborn one, but race is in fact a myth. There is only one race, and that race is the human race. The truth is that what separates me from perhaps Jonathan here is just a, a few strands of DNA. And you might be surprised to note that I probably share more DNA with uh, people of a paler hue than some of, pe- some of the people who share the same color that I have. Race really is a myth. Yet, sexism, that is the segregation of women into a convenient subordinate category for the purpose of exploitation, sexism is a powerful socio-historic force that continues to have economic, emotional, and existential consequences. Yet, also, racialization, that is the separation of people into convenient labels, again for the purpose of exploitation, is a powerful socio-historic force that continues to have economic, emotional, and existential consequences. My view, I think, is the view that best represents scripture, I hope, at least. And it is this, that humanity, all of humanity, was created good. And in the words of the creator, not my words, human beings are created very good. So part of this um, discussion on humanity, as, as Latoya was saying, is the idea of decency. And what I think about when I think about decency is just how we treat each other. And so if we are all humanity and made in the image of God, and that's good, then how we treat God's creation, how we treat his image in others, is really important. It's really significant to think about for us. And one of the reasons we need to think about it is because oftentimes wrong thinking leads to wrong action. So how we consider other people, what we believe about who they are and how they're made and whether or not they're good and what is in them is good will influence how we end up treating them, even if we don't recognize that we have wrong thinking that wrong thinking ends up influencing how we treat people. So that's what we call ideology. Um, And ideology is basically those beliefs, those things in us, even subconsciously, that dictate our actions. Um, Race, like uh, Renee was saying, is an ideology. It's created, it's made up. Uh, It's not actually, so this idea that um, different races have different kind of biological attributes was kind of created by a pseudoscience, you know, a couple hundred years ago, essentially. And we've used that, even subconsciously, even if we don't believe that anymore, sometimes that gets used to keep people separated. 
to create systems that don't treat people well. And so ideology is really important, how we think about people, what we know about people. And if we know that we are all created in the image of a good God, that means that all people bear his image, and so we should treat them as such. And one of the scriptures that I love to look to, um, I think Aaron White preached on it earlier this semester as well, and it's such a good portion of scripture as Ephesians 4. It says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And at the end of the chapter, it's, uh, Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So God didn't, Paul wrote this, and in the first three chapters, he just sets up explaining how God forgave us, how he met us in our sin, all of the things that he's done for us to save us. And then he says, because he's been so good to you, basically treat each other well. And here's how you do that. And I love some of these attributes, humility and gentleness. I think of those as um, kind of, are you willing to take a lower position? Or do you always kind of push your rights on other people? Are you willing to look at your responsibilities to other people before you're concerned really with your own rights to things? We as Americans especially can be very concerned with our rights. What's my right in all of this? And I think we as Christians should be more concerned with what's my responsibility to others in this? Um, I love the, the idea of long-suffering. I read something once that said, long-suffering is the spirit that has the power to take revenge but never does. Um, it is a characteristic of a forgiving and a generous heart. And I like to think of decency really as the posture that we're taking to the world. I actually really like the word orientation, though I think right now in our culture it's being used in a very specific way. I think it's a good word for how are we, like what are we doing, um, how are we positioning ourselves in relationship to the world around us? And just because people are living in sin, it doesn't mean we have to put ourselves in a posture of defensiveness or hatred or um, angry language. We can still posture ourselves with all of these things that come from scripture, gentleness, kindness, love. And sometimes I think we forget that we're not the Holy Spirit empowered to convict others. Um, sometimes the Holy Spirit will prompt us, but I promise you when he does, he, uh, the Holy Spirit wants us to uh, bring truth always with gentleness, love, kindness, long-suffering, and peace in mind. And so we find ourselves in this position of, what do we do? How do we treat other people? How do we treat that family member who has now come out of the closet and is living a gay lifestyle? Do we treat them first as the choices that they're making, or someone made in the image of a loving God, with gentleness and kindness and love and peace. I think that our ideology sometimes as Christians is to see people first as the sin and not as the image of God that they do bear. 
even with that sin that God sent his son to die for, right? Like, God still loves these people. But it's not just that. We treat our own brothers and sisters in Christ sometimes very horribly because of, like Renee was talking about, differences in skin color because we're living with an ideology, really a sinful ideology, that differences in skin color means differences in intellect, which it doesn't, means differences in a number of things. And really what it, what it has come to mean is oftentimes just differences in culture, differences in a way of kind of understanding and experiencing the world. And while we want to understand those things, I call race the, the lie that means something. Because although it's invented and it's not a truth, it has significant impact in our communities. And so we need to understand those things. We don't want to just blind ourselves to it. But we need to have the right thinking about it and a right understanding of it so that we can embrace other people well. Um, one of the things that's, that's interesting about decency that I think is a fundamental truth of the kingdom is that embrace always precedes healing. You want to heal racial tensions in our world because they're all around the world? Learn how to embrace other people well with dignity and respect because that is what will lead to healing. So I think a lot has already been said. And when we got together to talk about what is it that we want to share, what is it that we want to convey, we said, you know, where our question that we were given is what is human? So we have to talk about what is human. But we struggled with, well, we just can't talk about what is human without addressing what is decency. We can't address what is decency without even first defining what justice even is. So I could tell you the textbook definition or the Wikipedia or the Google definition of what justice is, fairness, treating people uh, justly, fair, right. But then the reality is, if you have a different definition of what fair is or what just is or what is right, then it puts us back in the situation of needing to define what justice is. So a few weeks ago, and I've been seeing it every day, right down the street, um, there's a church and on the side of the church there's this huge sign that simply says, justice is what love looks like in the public. So I thought about that. Justice is what love looks like in the public. So then we begin to say, so I'm like, okay, we already have to talk about what is human and what is decency and what is justice. And I'm thinking we need to add what is love. So when we talk about what love is, we could also talk about what love is not. So the Bible tells us that we should love, that we should love our neighbors as we love ourselves. What I like to say is what the Bible doesn't tell us is we should love our neighbors as we love ourselves if they look like us. Or we should love our neighbors as we love ourselves if they have the same education that we do. Or we should love our neighbors as we love ourselves if they're the same religion or same sexual orientation or same political affiliation. That's what the Bible does not say. And I think too often we find ourselves in situations where we, we're not demonstrating what is godly love and oftentimes is not uh, intentional. Sometimes it can be an unintentional thing that we are doing that we don't even realize we're doing. So the lawyer in me 
I can try to turn it off, but I can't. The law tells us that ignorance of the law is no defense. So if you break a law and then you are convicted for breaking that law, you can't go into the court and say, Your Honor, I did it, but I didn't know it was illegal. The law says that ignorance of the law is no defense. So I feel that even for us, ignorance of certain things is no defense. So just because I can say, well, I didn't realize that I wasn't loving that person, to me it's no defense. And I feel like we have a duty to be able to educate ourselves about other people and other cultures. There are so many tools out there that allow you to be able to do that. So just because you and someone are different, you're from different places, and I'm not just talking about race, I'm talking about everything. Every little thing that can make us different. I can tell you, everyone in this room, you're different from someone else in this room because the room is filled with male and female people. So that's a difference in itself. Um, you are not allowed to just say, well, I don't understand the, the male, me as a woman. I don't understand men, so I'm allowed to just mistreat them. That's not an excuse. I tell everyone that cultural competence is important. You have a duty to understand everyone as well. Uh, and, and I'll stop for Jonathan to be able to talk about the next point by saying that when I read justice is what love looks like in the public, to me, the love in that is a big thing. The Bible tells us to guard our heart with all due diligence because out of it flows the issues of life. And depending on what translation you're reading, it tells you that the heart is the wellspring. So when we talk about the heart, when we talk about love, if, if I tell my two-year-old love, he's thinking heart. So love is attached to your heart. And the Bible tells us to guard our heart with all due diligence because out of it flows the issues of life. So what I'm saying is, if I have hatred in my heart, then that's something that's going on in my heart and I need to guard it and get that hatred out because what happens is that hatred that is in my heart begins to be outward manifestations in the way I'm treating people and in my actions and that is not what we're called to do as Christians. Yeah, and when we're talking about humanity and what is human, um, there are these commonalities that we all share and they may seem obvious uh, on the outset and there's this phrase from Shakespeare where um, one of his characters talks about the body and he says uh, in reference to the body that it's a mortal coil. And that phrase has always stuck with me. What is our commonality um, when we reference humanity? Of course the mortal coil is part of the commonality and when we think about, um, allow me to think about the long game of humanity for a second here, uh, by thinking about who we are in context of the history of who's come before us. What do we share? My wife likes to say this, and I hope this isn't too irreverent. My wife likes to say, I'm the sperm that made it. And really, that is what we share. We all have this common uh, bond that we are this miracle of conception, of birth, of creation, right? All of us share that. And I think when we are wondering about that commonality, um, I think it's helpful to stand at a place like Indian Mountain State Park, Indian Mountains Park over in St. Paul and reflect on who came before us, who left these mounds here. What do we share with them, this civilization that we can only imagine? They were human 
as were people in the Middle Ages in the monasteries. They were human, as were people in different continents in 1200, in 200, in the Roman era, in the pre-Roman era, you know, all throughout the world. I mean, it's really incredible. I've been reading this biography of London by Peter Ackroyd. And, um, in research, a lot of archaeologists estimate that people have been living in that area of London for over 12,000 years, which is, I mean, kind of mind-blowing to me to read that. But um, Dr. Braywhite mentioned this, uh, the DNA testing. Uh, some of you have heard about these companies. There's a lot of tech companies now that are emerging where you can send in a sample of your, uh, like, say, your hair or something or a swab of from your cheek, and they will give you a breakdown of the DNA. This is uh, fairly new technology. But what a lot of people are finding when they get those results, my uncle did this not too long ago, they're finding that if they consider themselves or if they self-identify with, with being Anglo-Saxon heritage, they're finding that, in fact, they have some American Indian heritage or they, they have some uh, African American heritage or, or African heritage. Um, a lot of people are finding that. In, in, you know, across races, right? So we have a lot of people that self-identify as black that have some Anglo-Saxon heritage in their, in their DNA, which um, hopefully is getting us to reconsider our notion of what race is and our, our notion of identifying with a section of humanity alone, right? And, and we even do this in popular culture, right? Who is Barack Obama? He's the first black president. And he self-identifies as black, but he is, um, um, you know, his mother was white and his father was African. And I, I don't think that we think about that enough, right? Self-identification is something we can all do. But the notion of what is our commonality sometimes goes beyond the self-identification. And to that phrase, the moral coil, let's, let me just come back to that for a second. It's, it is a coil. And I think that the, the other part of the commonality of humanity is that um, the implication is that it's wrapping around something. What is that something? And that, I think, is the other side of commonality of humanity, is that in, in almost every single culture, we find this idea that there is something that this coil wraps around, right? And what is that? The search for that is so much a part of the commonality of humanity, the search for something beyond what this rack of bones will be in 200 years. Uh, the desire for immortality, the, the reason that people would build the, the ziggurats and the temples. Why would they do that? This drive to find something beyond the mortal coil. When I'm gone, what will be here? Where will my sense be? Where will my being exist? That drive, of course, um, is, is there in commonality. And now, some of you might say, oh, yeah, 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 but uh, what about you know, modern America? They're, they're a naturalist society. They don't have that desire to have the eternal. But when you look at it, though, I mean, what is, what is eternal in the naturalistic worldview? It is the construction of the laws that have been built, right? The physical laws, the laws of nature, they will supersede anybody living in that naturalistic worldview, then isn't that still a hope for those people who have and hold that worldview? Like part of it might be that desire to create something and prove that this is something that preceded them and, and continues to exist beyond them, right? Like I see that as part of that drive. 
And of course, as a Christian theist, um, my answer is the recognition that I need something beyond myself. And I look to that as the ultimate hope for eternity, whatever form that takes, right? So I'll say this. What do we all have in common? We all have sinned. We all fall short of the glory. We all were born. We all will die. We all should be born again. We all need a savior. We have that in common. But we also have differences. So I have a two-year-old, and there's a Sesame Street book. I think I talked about this book before. He always brings me this book and wants to read it, and the book is called We Are Different, But We're the Same. <laughs> and the book talks about we're different because we have different hair, but then we're the same because our hair grows out of our head. Our hair is used to warm us. We're different because our noses are different. We're the same because our noses are used to smell and to sneeze. So the book goes through all of these things that we're different, but we're the same. And then that leads to, okay, we can talk about what we have in common, but then, let's be real, we do have differences. As I pointed out in the beginning, there are male and female people in this room. So the question is, how do we coexist with our differences? We can accept the things that we have in common, but how do we accept and coexist with the differences? Okay. So I'm going to try to uh, address that. I think the first... Uh, point I'm going to make has already been made, but I can't turn off the theologian, so I will give you what I consider to be a theological response. Um, and we mentioned love, uh, but I think our definitions of love are too wishy-washy. And when we think that God is love, we think of a pink, you know, uh, marshmallow in the sky, right? <laughs> but, but that is not love. Love is far more robust and far more dangerous than that. So what is my definition of love? And my definition of love in the context of dealing with differences and how we incorporate and, and wrestle with differences is this. Love is a decision commitment to perceive the object of love with unconditional positive regard, which then causes me to place the well-being, needs, and aspirations of the object of my love at the same level as my own and to act in a manner consistent with that fact, even at my own expense. Boy, that's so wordy. <laughs> Let's break it down. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. That, my friends, is the beginning and the essence of biblical love. Um, but in connection, it's not just love. I think the other part of this is the action of what I call creating a culture of honor. And for me, we need to create this culture of honor that celebrates and respects human diversity as a facet of God's nature and does not perceive the other person as lesser or as an existential threat. There's a lot in there, a lot of politics in there. But when we start to perceive others as existential threats, then there's no possibility of celebrating that difference. So those are the two ways, I think, broad categories, loving and creating then this culture of honor. I think one of the questions that comes up is how do we create that, right? How do we show that kind of culture of honor and love and respect to others? And one of the things that um, I find myself coming back to is, is that posture of humility of, uh, that it takes to be a learner. 
that to learn about other people is to say sometimes that we don't know, and that can be scary. But I have often found that some of my greatest connections come when I can just say, you know, I don't understand that about, like, culturally, what that's like for you. Could you explain that to me a little bit more? Could you share your story with me on that? Um, and I have found in doing that a, a deep joy that comes out of learning about other cultures, the way that they perceive the world. I would maybe even go a little bit further if I can, I don't want to change scripture, but <laughs> and say not just do unto others as you would have them do to you, but do unto others as they would have you do to them. Because culturally, sometimes um, how I receive love is very different than how another culture might show and receive love. And so we need to learn about those things. And, and sometimes I find that I, I get to learn really neat new ways of showing love to other people, of engaging in another culture. I get to learn interesting ways of thinking about the world. Uh, I had a teacher uh, in my doctoral program is from South Africa, and he talked about a lot about a principle that was very, very important to them. And I cannot, for the life of me, remember the term for it. I should email him and ask him. But um, essentially, he talked about when he was a kid on the playground, they had this game that they would play. Um, he's a black South African. And when he was growing up, that meant a lot of racial prejudice and hatred and um, segregation for him. And, and for him, that meant a lot of poverty, not a lot of wealth. And so he said the game was, if I said this word to you, you had to give me half your sandwich. Because as a community, for them, that was an expression of taking care of one another. He said, so really what the game became sometimes was, how quick can I eat the bit of my sandwich that I have left before somebody asks me for it because I'm hungry too. But the principle for that community was, if you ask, I will share. And that hit me so hard because I don't th think we necessarily have that maybe in the American culture that I grew up in. If you ask, I will always share, no matter what it costs me. Um, even, uh, I've learned from Renee, you're from Barbados, and you told me friendship in Barbados means being inconvenienced. And I went, wow. I want... Sometimes I think friendship for me is people who inconvenience me the least. And maybe that needs to change. Um, we, we honor other cultures by learning about them and allowing that to change what might be wrong in our own culture. What might not be quite so good for us and biblical in our own culture. Can I jump in with a story? Because I think my story dovetails with what you've, you've shared. Um, now, we've been beaten over the head with the term white privilege in this election cycle, right? And some might think, well, that's not real, that's a made-up concept. Uh, let me tell you, quite frankly, I believe the same too. I believe it was nonsense. You see, I grew up in a country where I experienced privilege. I was black. Everyone around me was black. My leaders were black. When I asked what was beautiful, I saw beautiful black women. When I asked what is good, I saw it reflected in the culture that I understood. 
So I remember watching on television all this ruckus back in the 80s and so on about, you know, uh, African-Americans and, you know, and how, feeling oppressed. And I thought, why don't these African-Americans just get over it? Because I was in Barbados. I had no clue that I was living what is called black privilege. It does exist. You see, what I learned was that we all have an inherent will to power to make what we are the standard and what someone else is not the standard. And I was really unsympathetic until I moved to the United States and tried to get a cab in New York City and went into an elevator with white folks who looked at me as though I was a criminal. And I could tell you a whole bunch of horror stories, but it left me distinctly with the impression, oh my goodness, I lived with invisible privilege. And it led me to be hurtful and mean to those who were being oppressed. I still feel badly about that to this day. Well, I'm happy you said that because I think oftentimes we want to be real, but we don't want to be real. Because we don't want to step on anyone's toes or we don't want to say the unspoken, the thing that shouldn't be said. And I also like that your experience, I feel that for you to say that, and you said it yourself, you were in Barbados with this experience, it's a, a lot easier for us to look in and judge something when we do not know the whole story, but then the perspective changes when you have to go through it. And I can tell you, so often someone may say, well, I don't think that that person's really being discriminated against on their disability or on their gender or on their race because you have not experienced it. But if you are in the majority, then why would you experience it? It's oftentimes when chaos begins to arise that you hear the stories or see people actually experiencing it. But I can tell you, when you experience it yourself, it's a different story. And I'll give, I'll share two stories about that, but I'll say this first. For me, I have been called a nigger before to my face by classmates. I have witnessed, I'm from the South, but I don't even think that it's something that's isolated to the South. South, I think, is just handled differently. I have witnessed two classmates, black men, white men, who were friends, and this is when I was in college, and an incident happened where uh, one of the fraternities decided to have a fundraiser, and their fundraiser was a slave auction. The white male members of this fraternity dressed up in blackface and were auctioned off the girls showed up and bought them, and then you had a date with them, and they were your slave for the week or day. So it created a whole bunch of controversy on the campus, and a discussion ensued where um, the black male student and the white male student, who I was close with both of them, we worked together, we were like student ambassadors, and the discussion got real. And the black student said, but that's your fraternity, and you participated. And the white student said, well, yes, but I do not view you that way. And then the black student had to give him some facts about, do you think this, do you think that, do you think that? Well, all of those things are me, so you do see me that way, okay? And those are the things that we just don't wanna talk about, but I can tell you when it gets real. It gets real when you have an offspring who I know that no matter how much love I give to my child, no matter the fact that my child at two can tell you that he believes in God the Father and Jesus Christ his only son, no matter the fact that my son has two 
parents who are attorneys, the reality is when he steps out into the street, he's a black face. Because you don't know his story or his background. All you see is that he is a black face. And that is just the reality. But I will say this, it, it does go both ways. So I had a classmate in law school who was a black guy from Atlanta, and I've shared this story before with some of the students who, you know, who I have in class, classes. And uh, he was a black guy from Atlanta, and he went to an all-black K through 12 private school. He went to Morehouse, which is all black men. And then we get to law school, and we have this white female professor, and he's just not doing well. And he tells me, I just don't understand her. And I say, what are you talking about? She's speaking English. You, you're acting as if she's speaking another language. And he tells me, I've never had to deal with white women. And I said, you're from Atlanta. There are white women in Atlanta. I cannot believe that you've not interacted with a white woman. And he said, I have, but just never on that level. And those are the things that we, we take for granted and if we're never confronted with it, we don't realize that those things are actually existing. Uh, so to me, there's power in the person who can say, you know what, you're the first time I've had an African-American teacher. I'm excited to, to learn from that. You know, we can acknowledge those differences and it not be a hindrance or it not be some barrier because at the end of the day, I'm speaking English as well. So we can use that to continue to grow. But sometimes it takes that transparency and that vulnerability for us to be able to move past the taboo or the unsaid thing. You go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you know, we're talking about it at that um, anecdotal level with it, which is so powerful, the personal experience. And when we're talking about commonalities and how we come together as humanity, I think it's important too that, especially on the topic of race today, we need to recognize the role that media plays in our lives. And um, you've probably heard a lot of talk about filter bubbles too with what you see on Facebook and the conversation that you have on Facebook and how it's limited to your feed and Facebook's algorithm and a commercial bias because Facebook is out to make money and their producers, the media producers, are you. So when you're talking about media bias, sometimes that implies yourself and your own community and your feed. But um, on a broader scale of understanding those, those notions, those stereotypes that a lot of people have and that we may have um, are coming sometimes from these deeply rooted um, societal problems, which if we're asking ourselves what is humanity, that should help us build a society. Mm -hmm. And we're coming to terms now, more than ever, I think, your generation is facing this concept that in the past, America has not built its society on an ethical structure of what is human, right? And yes, obviously in the past, distant past, but we're talking about the 1960s, the 1920s even, and I'll share something specifically about Minneapolis. Okay, uh, I think a lot of people uh, think about Minneapolis as being pretty diverse and um, you know, the racial conflicts were really in the South in the 1960s. But in World War, in World War I, there was a guy named Arthur Lee and uh, he fought in World War I, came back to the States, got married. Um, he had a six-year-old daughter. He worked for the post office here in Minneapolis. He and his wife, Edith, they bought a house in South Minneapolis, 46th in Columbus, it's only 40 blocks from here. Okay, They bought that house in a predominantly white neighborhood. And uh, 
after they bought it, the night after they bought it, uh, a lot of community members were really mad to have an African-American family living in the neighborhood. So what did they do? Well, they circled the neighborhood. I mean, we're not talking about 10 people. We're talking about 1,000 Minneapolis residents circling this house and threatening the Lees with death or harm unless they left the neighborhood. I mean, this is Minneapolis we're talking about. This was something that was deeply rooted in society that said, look, maybe that person is human, but I don't want them living in my neighborhood. Right? That is a distinctive societal problem. And this is widespread across the US. And we look at the situation today and we think about how generations gain wealth. A lot of times it's through, uh, you know, a, a grandfather has a house or something and it's passed down to the parents or something like that, you know. And we're looking at the disenfranchisement of entire segments of American society through this, um, through distinctive divides saying, these people are human, but they can't do this. They can't do what these other people can do. I mean, that's going to have effect for generations down the line. And then you have these moments, like in an elevator or somewhere else, and this trickle down that involves media, that involves policy, that involves society is all kind of wrapped into those interactions. And you have to ask yourself then, what is human and do I really believe that? Am I, am I willing to build a media and a society that's going to reflect my idea of what's human and how, how people should be treated as human. So you said that was in the 60s? That was, so that was 19, it was post-1920, I think it was 1931 that it happened. The so that happened. was 80 years ago? Do you think that's happening in 2016? <laughs> Just curious. I don't know if there is, I don't know if there are any real estate developers who would still do that and get sued and of course there are. Yes, of course there are. I saw in the news and I'm not picking on Minneapolis and this is not something I've shared with them. Just scrolling along time the timeline on Facebook and seeing what happened in Maple Grove yesterday where some students had to high school students had to go to school and encounter in 2016, you, you know, we don't think that someone's going to have to go to school and be faced with graffiti that says um, niggers not allowed. In 2016, that's, that's not something that we expect. Uh, I like that you brought up the media. I'm from New Orleans, so I think about 2005 for Hurricane Katrina when, when black people were breaking into stores to get food or whatever, the media said that they were looting but when white people broke into stores to get food, the media said they were surviving. Almost identical pictures. Uh, but it's just the reality of what, uh, what we allow to subconsciously impact our, our thinking. I think part of the difficulty of these conversations is that um, they are so deeply personal. And it does take such vulnerability and, and what can happen is sometimes when we're vulnerable with each other, um, when we've had the experience of trying to be vulnerable and to talk about our experience, um, other people come along and try to discount those experiences. And that's a slap in the face. That's not an embrace. It's a, you're lying. Did that really happen? And... <clears throat> and I can speak to the, as a white person, it can make white people, if we've not had these experiences and we've, we've not had to live like this, can make us feel like 
guilty almost. It can raise these really strong emotions in us too because we don't know what to do with it. And I would strongly encourage you, like I do a lot of my students when we talk about this in class, to take a deep breath and keep listening. Don't react. Don't say, well, that probably didn't happen or that's just one story. Don't discount other people's experiences. But also know that other people's pain doesn't negate your own pain. And I think that's some of the misunderstandings here. It's because people will say, well, I still have pain. I've still had hard things that I've gone through. Doesn't that matter? All pain matters, but we have to, and we have to address all pain. But sometimes there's bigger things at play here, systems at play that do need to be addressed, and we need to be listening to each other and really hearing these stories and letting them settle in and then thinking about how can I, as scripture says, humble myself in this situation? How can I posture myself as a learner and a listener and then use what I know to be an ally and an advocate, not leading the charge even, but just walking alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ to say, we see injustice and it needs to change. Can I do something really quickly? I want to move this beyond race for just a second, right? And I like Sherlock Holmes, so I want you to go into your mind palace, right? <laughs> and I want you to imagine a world. If you have to close your eyes, it's okay. Imagine a world where all the artificial impediments that are posed upon you by others are gone. No one cares that you're not a straight-A student. No one cares that you are a size two, no one cares that you're athletic, that you're not one of the beautiful or popular people, no one cares. In fact, whenever you show up, they celebrate. There's a smile, there's warmth, and you feel as though, wow, I belong. Imagine that world. And then make it your mission to create that world for other people, because that's exactly what other people want. I think that's, that sums it up. <clears throat> we, we initially said that we wanted to end with, if you can share in one minute what you would want to share with your brother, not just from your own race, but another, or not only from your own gender, but another. And I think that what Renee says, for me, sums it up. So. I think what I'd like to have you do is, first of all, appreciate our panel. Would you do that? <laughs> <laughs>